My name is Dr. Mark McCullough. I will be reading from Dante's Inferno, Canto 10, translated by Mark Musa. Now onward down a narrow path, between the city's ramparts and the suffering, my master walks, I following close behind. A lofty power who through these impious gyres led me around as you see fit, I said. I want to know. I want to understand. The people buried there in the sepulchres, can they be seen? I mean, since all the lids are off the tombs, and no one stands on guard. And he, they will forever be locked up when they return here from Jehoshaphat with the bodies that they left up in the world. The private cemetery on this side serves Epicurus and his followers, who made the soul die when the body dies. As for the question you just put to me, it will be answered soon, while we are here. And the wish you are keeping from me will be granted. And I, O my good guide, I do not hide my heart. I am trying not to talk too much, as you have told me more than once to do. O Tuscan, walking through our flaming city alive and speaking with such elegance, be kind enough to stop here for a while. Your mode of speech identifies you clearly, as one whose birthplace is that noble city with which in my time, perhaps, I was too harsh. One of the vaults resounded suddenly with these clear words, and I, intimidated, drew up a little closer to my guide, who said, What are you doing? Turn around and look at Farinata, who has risen, and you will see him from the waist up, standing straight. I already had my eyes fixed on his face, and there stood out tall, with his chest and brow proclaiming his disdain for all of this hell. My guide, with a gentle push, encouraged me to move among the sepulchres towards him. Be sure you choose your words with care, he said. And when I reached the margin of his tomb, he looked at me, and half contemptuously he asked, And who would your ancestors be? And I, who wanted only to oblige him, held nothing back but told him everything. At this, he lifted up his brows a little, then said, Bitter enemies of mine they were, and of my ancestors, and of my party. I had to scatter them not once, but twice. They were expelled, but only to return from everywhere, I said. Not once, but twice. And art your men, however, never mastered. Just then, along the same tomb's open ledge, a shade appeared, but just down to his chin, beside this other. I think he got up kneeling. He looked round as though he hoped to see if someone else perhaps had come with me, and when his expectation was deceived, he started weeping. If it be great genius that carries you along through this blind jail, where is my son? Why is he not with you? I do not come alone, I said to him, that one waiting over there guides me through here, the one perhaps your Guido held in scorn place of pain assigned him, and what he asked already had revealed his name to me and made my pointed answer possible. Instantly he sprang to full height and cried, What, what did you say? He held? Is he not living? The day's sweet light no longer strikes his eyes. And when he heard the, silent, the silence of my delay responding to his question, he collapsed into his tomb, not to be seen again. 
that other stately shade, at whose request I had first stopped to talk, showed no concern, nor moved his head, nor turned to see what happened. He merely picked up where we had left off. If that art did not master, he went on, that gives me greater pain than does this bed. But the face of the queen who reigns down here will glow not more than fifty times before you learn how hard it is to master such an art, and I hope that you may once more know the sweet world. Tell me, why should your party be so harsh to my clan in every law they make? I answered, the massacre and butchery that stained the waters of the Erbia Red now cause such laws to issue from our councils. He sighed, shaking his head. It was not I alone took part, he said, nor certainly would I have joined the rest without good cause. But I alone stood up when all of them were ready to have Florence raised. It was I who openly stood up in her defense. And now, as I would have your seed final find peace, I said, I beg you to resolve a problem that has kept my reason tangled in a knot. If I have heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds, but your knowledge of the present is not clear. Down here we see like those with faulty vision, who only see, he said, what's at a distance. This much the Sovereign Lord grants us here. When events are close to us, and when they happen, our mind is blank, and were it not for others, we would, not, we would know nothing of your living state. Thus, you can understand how all our knowledge will be completely dead at that time when the door to future things is closed forever. Then I, moved by regret for what I'd done, said, Now will you please tell the fallen one his, sin, his son is still on earth among the living? And if when he asked, silence was my answer, tell him when he was speaking all my thoughts were struggling with that point you solved for me. My teacher had begun to call me back, so I quickly asked that spirit to reveal the names of those he shared the tomb with. He said, More than a thousand lie with me. The second Frederick is here, and the cardinal is with us. And the rest I shall not mention. His figure disappeared. I made my way to the ancient poet, reflecting on those words, those words which were prophetic enemies. He moved, and as he went along, as we went along, he said, What troubles you? Why are you so distraught? And I told him all the thoughts that filled my mind. Be sure your mind retains, the sage commanded, those words you heard pronounced against yourself. And listen carefully now. He raised a finger. When at last you stand in the glow of her sweet ray, the one whose splendid eyes see everything, from her you'll learn your life's itinerary. Then to the left he turned. Leaving the walls, he headed towards the center by a path that strikes into a veil whose stench arose, disgusting us as high up as we were. So Canto 10 is an extraordinary canto. It's one of Dante's finest. Um, my comments here will be uh, uh, geared to help uh, the reader understand the passages here, but also to appreciate um, how well written, uh, especially the character of Farinata and Cavalcante are here. 
and also what Dante here is doing in this uh, passage about heresy. Now, the sin of heresy is, according to Dante, a form of intellectual pride. Uh, it's neither an action, uh, which would place him perhaps in the um, sins of incontinence, neither is it um, violence per se against others. Um, my reasoning for being curious about this is because I always considered heresy to be a, a sin against, uh, this is sort of a sin against the truth, if you accept Dante's understanding of heresy as a teaching made by the church at the time. And many of the, um, uh, many of the damned we see in violence will be there because they have misused the truth. They were thieves um, in a sense that they stole what was true and made it false. Um, but that doesn't apply here to the, the heretics, the heresies. Um, rather, the pride is much more of a kind of a kernel of, um, of this, of Farinata and Cavalcante's um, uh, assumptions about the immortality of the soul. Both these figures are placed in hell because they were Epicureans, and um, Epicurus was the Greek philosopher you know, in Athens, 306 BC, who taught that um, there was no afterlife. He denied the immortality of the soul. So it's particularly ironic that they we, we find the heretics here in opened tombs um, whose bodies remain to some degree and also whose existence is quite clear to themselves post-death. Um, the immortality of the soul denied by both these figures uh, is, of course, in reality, uh, a kind of part of their punishment. They both are there for all of eternity suffering and will suffer even further, we believe, after the tombs are shut after the Last Judgment, as Dante mentions in this passage. So the contrapasso here, or the, uh, the kind of the, the image of the punishment, is that those who believed that the, that the soul did not exist after death are now condemned to live their souls in a tomb. And further, as a kind of creative irony here, is that both figures sort of rise up out of the grave to address Dante. And uh, this, 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 this rising up, we see in the Duray portrait very clearly of Canto 10, which I would draw your attention to, and I'll post it here in the comments, is of uh, Farinata sort of uh, with all lack of humility and pridefulness, sort of looking down, looking down his nose up at Dante. Um, this figure of Farinata rising from the tomb and addressing Dante is a um, is a, a not so subtle echo of Christ rising from the grave. Uh, we might say the man of sufferings, um, the sort of this this the piata uh, of suffering uh, with his wounds. Um, but Farinata is a is a kind of demonic um, or inverted Christ-like resurrection in that. Um, his rising is really his falling. His rising, he's no higher than, than Virgil and Dante are as they look down on him in the tomb and uh, at the it, and is who is, for all intents and purposes, defeated at the end of this passage. We also have Cavalcante on the other side of Farinata 
the two were related through marriage. Um, Guido, uh, the the son of Cavalcante here, um, is a friend of Dante's, and he's a friend, he's a poet friend, Guido Cavalcante, who wrote, he's a contemporary poet of Dante of the time, and he wrote poetry. The text to Hollander will indicate that um, it's believed that Dante understood Guido to also be an Epicurean and would eventually join his father in this sort of this tomb, or maybe not join him in the tomb, but join him among the tombs in this uh, sort of inverted cemetery uh, of suffering. Um, and the misunderstanding that, that his father, Cavalcante, makes here is that thinking his son has died. Um, this all hinges on Dante's use of the word held. Um, let's see if I can find the exact line here. Um, he said, um, this is line 61, and, and I to him, I come not on my own. He who stands there waiting leads me through, perhaps to one your Guido held in scorn. Now, who that held, who, who Guido is holding in scorn here is a little ambiguous, whether it's Virgil or Beatrice or some other figure, but the reaction his, uh, his father has, who sort of leaps up from his own tomb erect, is not ambiguous. In fact, he believes incorrectly that his son has died. He, Cavalcante, suddenly erect, he cries. This is line 67. What, did you say he held? Lives he not still? Does not the sweet light strike upon his eyes? And I'm reading here from Hollander, by the way, um, unlike the news I read at the beginning. So this he held, past tense of the term, uh, Cavalcante believes his son has died which is a misunderstanding. And Dante is silent to, to this misunderstanding. He sort of allows the misunderstanding, which devastates this, the, this father. And the father slinks back and fa or falls back into the tomb. He fell backward and showed himself no more. This is an interruption of discussion with Farinata about uh, the political situation in Florence. So Dante's silence is kind of, a, kind of hurtful to the damned. And he will even admit it as such uh, at the end of Canto 10, where Dante will tell Farinata to, um, to make sure that, that Guido's father uh, understands um, that his son is still in line 111 among the, among the living. And then finally, he, and then he says to Farinata in 112, And let him know if I was slow to answer, it was because I was preoccupied with doubts you have resolved for me. And... Um, and we return to what I said before. I mean, this is a this is a tremendous uh, articulation of what it means to be human, <clears throat> and sort of the discussion between Dante and and Farinata, and, and interrupted by Cavalcante. Dante explains that he was being silent because he was preoccupied. Um, whether we believe that or not, I'm not sure. Whether he was just being mean to to Guido's father, um, it's hard. It's it's really hard to say. Um, but Dante explains it as a hesitation that when when. When the father asked of him whether his son was alive or not, Dante was silent. Dante says he was thinking about the problem and the doubts that he had. <clears throat> and those doubts were uh, whether or not the, what the damned can actually see as they are in hell. Virgil answers this to him in lines, um, uh, further lines, uh, uh, that, that, that the damned can see. The damned can see the future, but they, they, they do not know the present. 
He says in line 100, We see, like those with faulty vision, things at a distance. That much for us the mighty ruler's light still shines. When things draw near or happen now, our minds are useless. This is, um, without the work of others, we can know nothing of your human state. So, the damned can see the future, but um, cannot see the present. They can see the past and they can see the future, but they can't see the present. And this is an important um, rule to hell. It's a rule that Dante himself stole or used. <laughs> we don't want to make him a thief uh, from Virgil you know, Virgil and, uh, and Homer. These are both, um, this is an ancient classical trope. So Dante accepts it as a rule and uses it in a Christian context. You know, what would it mean for any of us to know the future? It's a good question. Um, Dante seems to suggest that knowing the future means almost nothing uh, here. And there'll be more prophecies as, um, as the inferno um, rolls on. But yeah, to, to return to the beginning of this passage, Virgil um, warns Dante to ask the right questions. And here is Farinata, who uh, was uh, part of the, uh, the Ghibelline faction, who was the, uh, the enemies of the Guelphs, who Dante considered himself part of. Remember that Dante had a short but significant political career in Florence, and we might think of him in contemporary uh, terms as a moderate, attempting to um, to put an end to the, the the divisions of the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and then later to the divisions within the Guelphs who were dominant and whose party he was a part of, divided into the white and black. Farinata is not just a heretic because he believes uh, in the mortality and the death of the soul at the body's death, but he's also part of the um, Ghibelline faction uh, who opposed uh, Dante's faction. And so this gives way to Dante's questioning of uh, Farinata, and Farinata's um, sort of very prideful and haughty um, address of Dante. Um, Dante is curious, he exchanges with him, and Farinata recognizes him as a fellow Tuscan because of his, his voice, he hears his voice, and the two kind of ban uh, ban banter back and forth. And Farinata seems to be in winning this, winning this uh, argument or winning this um, sort of, I don't know, spat between the two. I said earlier in a conversation with some friends that this reminded me of like, you know, Yankees and Red Sox fans sort of bantering back and forth about how many World Series. Farinata seems to say, well, we have more World Series than you and we beat you. And, and then Dante returns... Um, by by rejoining him and 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 giving him a, a kind of a, a similar thrust, it's like a jousting move. No, the Guelphs, we we came back, and oh yes, but we had to exile you twice, and back and forth and back and forth. And so Farinata is a very prideful, a less than humble her heretic, and then he's made very human here in his in his pride. Hollander and Musa have in their footnotes to this passage that. Farinata was considered to be a somewhat noble figure for Dante, um, despite the fact that he was politically um, on the other on the other side of the aisle, um, and this is due to Farinata's sort of patience and prudence as a uh, as someone who opposed the destruction of Florence by the Ghibellines when they when they when they came back into power in Florence. It was a group of almost unanimously wanted to destroy Florence, destroy their enemies, and Farinata stood up to them. Well, history hasn't been kind to Farinata. Um, here in hell, this is how he's most 
remembered as, as a member, but at the same time, there's a humanizing quality, despite the fact that he's placed in an, in an, in an awful, um, an awful end here. All of the, all of you who are claustrophobic are, I know, cringing uh, as you look at this and people stuck in tombs. Well, you just, you wait, there's plenty of, uh, this claustrophobic nightmare fuel to go around as we, as we go through the inferno. So Farinata here, um, back and forth with Dante. Who did you come from? Scornful about it. Oh, you're not as good as me. And then in the midst of this lines 52 through 72, they're interrupted by Cavalcante. And now he wants to know where his son is um, because he he heard, um, he heard he's going to hear now um, the past tense of held. And then he's going to fall back after assuming that his son is dead. And again, as I said, this is a classical trope. It's something we see in the Odyssey. We see this in Hades. Um, Homer, Homer sort of presents there the um, the souls uh, that approach Odysseus as he as he walks through Hades. They're not really interested um, in much except for their relatives and what their relatives are doing back on Earth. And someone like Achilles uh, has no relative and is just simply interested in his own Kleos or his own honor and glory. Um, that's where we get the famous line from from Achilles to say it'd be better to you know be plowing <laughs> be behind a plow than to uh, than to be king king down here in hell um a line that will be reversed by satan and milton who is you know better to reign in hell than it is to serve in heaven oh literature is so much fun there's so many reversals um so the father assuming his son is son is dead and falls back that's a cl- kind of a classical trope but it's done so in such a human uh, way here. Um, there's real pathos to the father thinking his son is dead, Guido. Now, Guido may very well have been someone uh, for whom Dante believed would join his father since he was an Epicurean, but we do know that, that, that he and Dante had a very rich friendship. They were rival poets and at his time, and, um, and uh, his poetry is worth taking a look at for those of you who can, can find it um, out there. That's Cavalcante, and if you type his name in and Dante into into a search engine, I'm sure you'll find some poetry there. When we return to Farinade, um, there is more uh, questions and points about the city and the city of Florence, and that's uh, that's where Dante kind of thrusts and wins and scores, and Farinata is sort of left uh, wounded uh, by this uh, Dante's score. Um, and that's where the question comes uh, that Farinata answers. I made a mistake. I said Virgil answers it. No, actually, it's Farinata who uh, explains how um, the condition of the damned and how they can see. And then the canto ends by, you know, uh, Virgil reassuring Dante about his future, which includes Beatrice, and they resume their journey together. So um, the Duray print of Farinata sort of addressing Dante with, with Virgil is a, is a great sort of um, visual for the, the reading of Canto 10 um, of Dante and Virgil around the sepulchres, and, um, and also just this idea that we're really leaving a major section of hell, that is the sins of the incontinence, which include lust and anger, and we're entering into violence, which is what Canto 11 is all about. It's very exciting. And yet we have this, we have this coda of heresy, the intellectual pride of heresy, and um, uh, simply stated, you know, Dante places both these figures in hell because of their heresy, and yet by and yet he gives them great humanness, 
um, which for readers can be problematic considering the fact that we're, we're sort of asked not to pity uh, these damned that are just so human. And we might say, well, they just simply made a theological mistake here. Uh, and not just a mistake, but they, they deny the, the teaching of the, of the dominant force, the church at the time. Fair enough. But we also see, at least in Farinato, pride and, um, and gamemanship. And, um, and so we see a deeper, uh, maybe, maybe a deeper flaw to his, to, to his humanity.